This morning's scripture comes from Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 12. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Well, this morning we are going to spend a little bit of time talking about marriage, so I got a little cartoon to start things off here for you. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say may be used against you until death do you part. That's good. <laughs> wow. So I want to acknowledge from the outset that this morning's theme may well give off an air of exclusion. After all, we have plenty of people here who are not married, so why bother sitting through a sermon that has nothing to do with your life. Of course, a church is not just made up of married folks. We have youth and students here with us this morning who may or may not get married one day. We have people who have been married but are currently separated or divorced. We have people who have never been married but want to be. We have people who've never been married and don't ever want to be. We have people who are married but to a spouse who is absent. A wide variety of people gather here as part of our church community. So here's this morning's money-back guarantee. I'm going to do my absolute best to knock marriage off the pedestal that we've put it on, but then I'm going to pick it up again and set it on another higher pedestal, but one that is more accessible for all of us. But first I want you to listen in on a conversation between a couple who've been married for many years, but whose marriage is a shadow of what it used to be. It comes from Paulo Coelho's novel, The Zahir. And basically, a husband and wife are talking one evening, and the wife is telling her husband about something that she'd learned, and he says disinterestedly, oh, that's interesting. And she realized that he wasn't really paying attention. And he says, well, I'm tired. You know, we can talk about it tomorrow. And she says, like, that's the problem. That's the problem with our marriage. You always say, we'll talk tomorrow. And this is how the conversation continues. Where is the man I married who used to listen to what I was saying? Where's the woman I married? You mean the one who always gave you support, encouragement, and affection? Her body is here. 
And she will, I believe, stay with you for the rest of her life. But that woman's soul is standing at the door, ready to leave. But why? Because of those three wretched words, we'll talk tomorrow. Isn't that enough? If not, just consider that the woman you married was excited about life, full of ideas and joys and desires, and is now rapidly turning into a housewife. Well, that's ridiculous. Of course it is. It's nonsense. A trifle. Especially considering that we have everything we could possibly want. Besides, there are millions of children in the world starving to death. There are wars, diseases, hurricanes, tragedies happening every second. So what can I possibly have to complain about? Look, I promise, we'll talk tomorrow, but please, come to bed now, I'm tired. All right, we'll talk tomorrow. And if my soul, which is standing at the door, does, does decide to leave, I doubt it will affect our lives very much. Your soul won't leave. You used to know my soul very well, but you haven't spoken to it for years. You don't know how much it has changed, how desperately it's begging you to listen. If your soul has changed so much, how come you're the same? out of cowardice, because I genuinely think that tomorrow we will talk, because of everything we've built together, which I don't want to see destroyed, or for that worst of all possible reasons, because I've simply given up. Well, that's just what you've been accusing me of doing. You're right. I looked at you, thinking it was you I was looking at, but the truth is I was looking at myself. Tonight I'm going to pray with all my might and all my faith, and ask God not to let me spend the rest of my days like this. It's a prayer that has likely been prayed by many couples here this morning. A prayer where you feel trapped, where you feel like the thing that you started out on is not, has not gone the way that you had expected. Marriage is no easy relationship. There's no other way to say it. And acknowledging this is a great first step. In fact, when I sit around and talk with marriage in a marriage prep set setting, a lot of the things that uh, we, of all the things we talk about, one of the most significant that I want to get across is this idea that marriage can be difficult. But if you walk into it with your eyes open, then you won't be surprised when these things happen. I think one of the biggest mistakes that people make at the onset of marriage is to think that everything's going to be wonderful, that everything is just going to go the way you've planned. And then when something happens, when, when you find yourself having a conversation like this with your partner, you realize, oh, wait a second, this isn't what I signed up for. So the best thing, I think, is to start off with your head up and your eyes open, aware that it's difficult. Stanley Howarth made this observation. He said, a Christian marriage isn't about whether you're in love. Christian marriage is giving you the practice of fidelity over a lifetime in which you can look back upon the marriage and call it love. I like that. Now, I know a thing or two about this. I've been married for going on 21 years now to my wife. This picture of us is much younger versions. Um, and, but I was, had this thought when I was thinking. I was like, I wonder how long this marriage is going to last. And so I went online and I found uh, something called the love calculator. And basically, you, I, there's like 10 questions. And you answer these 10 questions, things like how much does the husband care about sex? How much does the wife care about money? You know, things like this, really important questions. And then when you answer them, it tells you how long you, your relationship's going to last. And so I plugged it in, and our relationship is going to last 31.3 years, according to this formula. And I was like, wait a second. I was doing the math. I'm like, that's like only another 10 years left. I was like, that's, it's rapidly disappearing here. So I started changing the answers. I'm like, well, I don't care that much about this. Or, you know, I care a little bit more about that. And, and I got it up to like 34, but then it started going down again. And I was like, ah, oh, I can't win. 
I can't win. So I did some more looking. I thought, okay, well, what, is the, what advice is out there that's going to help reverse this trend? And I found a few different things, but I thought I'd share this one with you. So the effect of religious attendance on divorce rates. So the, the blue one is like people who never attend church at all, and so that's like the reference point. So if you attend church occasionally, you're actually 10% more likely to get divorced. But if you attend church regularly, 46% less likely. So, I mean, I'm just saying, right? Like, I didn't make up this research. It's just scientific stuff. It's just science. Like, you can't argue with it, right? So, I'm just saying, maybe, maybe just show up a little more. I don't know. I don't know. You can find anything on the internet. It's great. Okay, so that's as good as a segue as I'm going to find into this morning's reading. Jesus is approached by a group of Jewish religious leaders who want to test his commitment, specifically his commitment to the law. Is it lawful, they ask, for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, it's kind of a strange question. Why would they ask this? Well, the Talmud, the Jewish oral tradition, specifically says that a man can divorce a woman because she spoiled his dinner or simply because he finds another woman more attractive. Those were legitimate grounds for divorce, according to Jewish law. And so they're like, well, does Jesus follow the law? Is he going to agree with this statement? But instead of answering their question, Jesus brought them back to the first union between a man and a woman, way back at the beginning. He talks about this story from the book of Genesis, and then he makes this comment, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together... Let no one separate. Now, I need to hit pause for a moment here and remind you that I'm not naive. I have walked very deeply with couples who have tried very hard to do this and have ended up dissolving their marriage. I think it's fair to say that I know as much as anyone who has not actually been divorced just how challenging and heartbreaking and soul-crushing it can be. The first time I walked with this through a couple, I remember sharing in confidence with someone else about how I felt like something had been ripped out from inside of me, some kind of of innocence, some kind of hopefulness. Like, I get that this is the real world. And neither was Jesus naive. But he wasn't afraid to challenge his questioner's motives. It's as if he was saying, instead of trying to weasel your way out of a difficult relationship, remember the bond that was formed And do everything you can to keep that bond intact. So on a purely practical level, it's important for a church to talk about how to have a healthy marriage. After all, aside from churches, who is supporting marriages? I had this thought, it was like two or three years ago, is driving behind a bus and there was like a big sign on the back of the bus advertising uh, a divorce lawyer firm. And I was like, I have never seen anyone advertise anything helping marriages. Because there are lots of people who will go there and they'll help people whose marriages are falling apart, but who is helping to put them together? And I think the church does have a unique role to play in that. And we've had different things that we've done over the course of the years. We've had an incredible program called Eight Cities, which a number of you have taken part in over the years, which is an opportunity for married couples to walk together and learn about relationships. We have marriage mentoring. You may or may not be aware of this, but we have couples in our church who who have been trained in, in mentoring younger couples, just sharing their life with you. It's not like a formal kind of counseling thing, but just having someone who's got a few more years of marriage under their belts to walk with you. We do hot date nights from time to time. Marriage preparation, as I've already mentioned. And as I think about marriage preparation, when I walk through this with couples, so one of the things that I talked about was the importance of kind of walking into marriage with your eyes wide open. Another thing that I like to talk about is the significance of 
the, how each partner needs to adapt in married life because we change over time, right? Spouses change, so we have to be able to change along with them. And what is the key to adaptation, to being able to change? The key, I think, is unselfishness, the willingness to put the other in front of yourself. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 2 for a minute. I want to read verse 18 and then verse 22 to 24. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. A few verses later, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. God's response to Adam's inadequacy was to create someone uh, who would be a helper. And so the first image we have of marriage casts the spouse as a helper. In Hebrew, an azer. And sometimes, depending on how long you've been around church, you may have heard this referred to as, well, like a help meet or a help make. Like someone to basically help out around the house. Adam was having a hard time and needed someone to do the dishes and fold the laundry and that. And some people have tried to interpret it this way. But actually, this word azer is is a much stronger word than that. It comes from two root words, meaning to rescue and to be strong. And actually, numerous times in Scripture, this word is applied to God. God is our azer. He comes alongside us. He helps us when we're in need. And so a marriage is about two people coming together to make one another stronger by the paradoxical path of humility and servanthood. Marriage isn't a 50-50 deal. It's not something where you sign and say, okay, fine, I'll give you like half of whatever. It's a hundred nothing deal. It's where you give all of yourself. You put everything on the table. You push all your chips in and you trust that the other person will do the same thing passage from Philippians 2, verse 3 to 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, this passage may sound familiar to you because I just quoted it a couple of weeks ago. The reality is anytime we're going to talk about relationships, whether it's marriage or friendships or office relationships like we did last week, we need to talk about this passage. Because if we're going to succeed in relationships, we've got to figure out how unselfishness can be the rule. This passage has nothing to do with marriage, but it has everything to do with marriage. Any and every aspect of Christian faith that can be applied to life generally can be applied to marriage specifically. But here's a question. Does this work the other way? Do the specifics of a Christian marriage have anything to do with the broader church community? Or when we talk about marriage, is it something that only applies to married folks? There's this line from a novel uh, by Marilyn Robinson where she's introducing a a character named Lila who basically had lived in terrible situation, terrible home situation, and then she comes to to live with with an older couple. And she writes, Lila had no particular notion of what the word married meant except that there was an endless pleasant joke between them that excluded everybody else and that all the rest of them were welcome to admire. I thought, in a sense, that's a great definition of marriage, but it's a really sad definition as well. While this may be what marriage looks like from the outside, this too self-centered exclusion of others falls far short of what marriage has the potential to be, which means that getting rid of this kind of exclusivity is an important part of what it means to cast a vision for a truly Christian understanding of marriage. 
A little while ago, I read a quote that I'm pretty sure I will use the next time I officiate a wedding ceremony. It comes from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who writes that every bride and groom are royalty, every home a palace when furnished with love. It's a beautiful line. Now, the irony, of course, is that marriage is far from the darling of Scripture. I mean, here's a little challenge for you. You can take the Bible in the pew in front of you or go home this afternoon and try to find any biblical characters that had a thriving marriage. Try to find a couple in the Bible where there was a marriage that did not include deception, infidelity, polygamy, idol worship, tragedy, or scandal. Go for it. You'll be there for a while. You might get your hopes up and then, no, oh, yeah, there's another wife, you know. Yeah. Like they're in there. There are other wives all over the place in the Bible. And yet marriage is often thought of as something that every Christian should strive for. And this, not only in the face of a lack of positive examples, but also in the face of some pretty strong encouragement to avoid marriage altogether. So let's flip to uh, Matthew chapter 19, the passage where we started off with here this morning. So Jesus basically says, yeah, okay, I get it that there's, the Jewish teachers are telling you that you can get this divorce, but, but you, know, you, you shouldn't just do this. No, like really, the only reason that you should be divorcing is for this uh, adultery. And the disciples said to him, oh my gosh, like Jesus, if that's really the only reason we can end a marriage, then maybe we shouldn't get married. Like if I can't divorce my wife because she burnt the dinner, like I don't know if I want to get into this kind of relationship. And Jesus is like, yeah, then maybe you shouldn't. What he actually said was, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. Now, Jesus wasn't the only one who had words of caution about this idea of marriage. Let's flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So this is Paul writing, and this is a passage that would often be reflected on when it comes to understanding certain aspects of marriage, but there's other pieces of this passage that we don't go to quite so frequently. So 1 Corinthians 7, verses 8 to 9. Now, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay, so we've got Jesus, who wasn't married, suggesting maybe this isn't the only way to go here. And we've got Paul, who wasn't married, saying, you know, maybe this isn't the only way to go here. He said, like, I mean, if if you just have to, then fine, go ahead with it. But, But it's better if you can stay as I am. Flip ahead a few verses here to verse 25 to 28 of 1 Corinthians 7. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think it's good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you haven't sinned. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? If you've married, you haven't sinned, not exactly. It's not like you've done a really bad thing by getting married. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned, but those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. This is like great pastoral advice here. But I've never, I've never preached from this in a wedding ceremony. It's like, you know, have the couple up there and just be like, you know, like you're not exactly sinning in what you're doing here, but this isn't the wisest decision you could have made either. I don't know. So you get the point. It's better to be single, but if you can't hack it, go and get married. Now, a few verses later, verse 32 to 35. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. 
but a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way, in undivided devotion to the Lord. So in a culture, a church culture, where marriage is exalted as the, the pinnacle of Christian relationship, we have Jesus and Paul, significant heavyweights when it comes to, you know, Christianity, weighing in and saying, you know what, I think the best path here would be uh, singleness um, with celibacy, um, but if you've got to get married, go for it. Martin Luther, the reformer, referred to both marriage and celibacy as gifts to the church, a language that we need to find a way to recover. But there are problems with the way that we think and talk about marriage today. I read uh, a blog post by a guy named Matt Moore. He said, life gets rough for singles when the church forgets she is the primary means by which God comforts and provides for his unmarried children. The greatest enemy of single Christians isn't sexual immorality or some other sinful vice. The greatest enemy of single Christians is lack of fellowship and meaningful friendship in the local church. So if unselfishness is the key that unlocks the heart of marriage, then the idolatry of marriage is the deadbolt that keeps us away from its even greater gifts. When marriage is at the center of our lives and not God and his kingdom, then it's idolatrous and we're falling short of how we're called to live. But what if the unselfishness learned in marriage was applied not only to the relationship between husband and wife, but to all of our relationships? Jamie Smith writes that love and its obligations traverse the boundaries of private residences and nuclear families because they initiate us into a household that is bigger than is what is under the roof of our house. What counts most as family is not the closed nuclear unit that is so often idolized as the family. Instead, the church constitutes our first family. The most faithful way for us to live in this world is to allow our marriages, if we're in them, and our nuclear families, whatever they look like, to remind us of our first family. So a couple of months ago, our family went to Montreal. We went on a little bit of a holiday, and we were staying at an Airbnb, and the, the host gave us some instructions about parking, said, you've got to obey the, the signs. So I took a picture of the signs here. First of all, they're in French, okay? And second of all, like, they're just confusing, and I'm trying to figure out where I can park. And the sign at the bottom, it's like, it has an arrow, and I'm like, the arrow's pointing, like, to the building. I'm like, what does that arrow mean? Does this rule apply to the right of the post or to the left of the post? Like, where am I allowed to park and where am I not allowed to park? These rules, I don't know, is hard to follow. It's a sign that's trying to tell me something, but I don't know what it is. Well, I wonder if marriage might actually be a sign that points beyond itself, implicating all of us in a deeper and holier mystery still. I think it is, so let me help with some translation. Eugene Rogers writes that marriage is an example of the concrete discipline that most of us lack. In marriage, we practice common discernment over self-interest. Marriage cultivates concern for one another. It offers lifelong hospitality. It enacts love. And it exposes our faults in order to heal them. It is the marital virtues that the church need. And we could take a look at this, just the next slide here. So some of the things that happen in a healthy marriage that actually can, can be a wonderful sign to the church of how we're all called to live. You know, how do we discern something in community? How do we express concern for one another? What does hospitality look like? How do we enact love? What about exposing our faults to one another? Healing. All of these things that happen in a healthy marriage happen in a healthy church as well. Other lessons that marriage can teach. How about forgiveness? How about intimacy? 
How about procreation, people coming together to give birth to something new? Can that happen in all of our lives? This is where marriage hits its stride, as it becomes not a goal but a sign for everyone. Following some instructions for husbands and wives, Paul refers back to the same passage in Genesis that Jesus had previously referred to. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. But his next comment opens up a door to a deeper understanding of what marriage is about at a more essential and significant level. He says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. Yes, it's a mystery how a husband and wife can actually manage to give themselves so fully to one another in marriage. But the real mystery is how Jesus has given himself so fully to the church. In fact, marriage is but a sign that points us there. Rachel Held Evans kind of reflects along the similar lines. For two people to commit themselves not simply to marriage, but to a lifetime of mutual love and submission in imitation of Christ is so astounding, so mysterious, it comes close to looking like Jesus' stubborn love for the church. And so every set of vows, every act of forgiveness, every intimate connection, they all point to a greater set of vows, a higher act of forgiveness, and an even more intimate connection. Marriage is a sign that points to the unity between Christ and the church. There's a great story in John chapter 2 that I want to look at as we head towards the finish line here. John 2, verses 1 to 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, I've heard it suggested that Jesus used this wedding as the, the instance for his first miracle as a way to honor marriage. But I don't think he was there to, to honor marriage. I think he was there because he, he liked a good party. I mean, that's what, that's what we learn about Jesus, right? He was there because there was a big party, and him and his buddies came to hang out. He doesn't actually say anything about marriage when he's at this wedding. But there's something just below the surface of John's gospel that says everything that Jesus chose not to say. John's gospel begins this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When you read these words, what does it remind you of in the beginning? Well, it certainly would have reminded every Jew of the book of Genesis, which begins the very same way, in the beginning. John tells us that the world was made through Christ, that he was the light of the world. And then John goes on counting the early days of Jesus' work. As you read through John chapter 1, you hear, and the next day, and then the next day, and then the next day. He's drawing this parallel between the beginning of Jesus' ministry and the days of creation. And then he introduces the events of the wedding at Cana as happening on the third day, which when you do the math equates to the sixth day of creation, the day that man and woman were created. So on the sixth day of creation, man and woman are created, and on the sixth day of Jesus' work, Jesus finds himself at a wedding ceremony. John wants us to know that the creative intentions of God in the beginning were being reenacted, remade, recreated right there in front of their eyes in the person of Jesus. In John 1.14, he writes, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And so John helps us move from a place of creation to incarnation, from God creating the world to God entering the world where man and woman failed as the image bearers of God falling into sin, Jesus would not fail. He would fulfill, faithfully bear the image of God. He would fulfill humanity's calling. You see, for John, the wedding at Cana wasn't the point. It was the occasion for the point. 
At the end of the story, after Jesus had turned water into wine, John writes that he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. In the miracle of turning water to wine, Jesus' identity as the Messiah was revealed and he began the work of inaugurating a new creation. This wasn't about marriage. This is about something new that Jesus was doing. And there's one other thing that I notice in there that I think is really important to understand. Well, what did Jesus come to do? John uses this phrase, on the third day. And as he's going through chapter one, it's on the next day, on the next day, on the next day, and then he he skips a day and says, on the third day. Well, why would he say that? Like, when you hear the phrase, on the third day, what do you think about? I think about Jesus' resurrection. And I think about, when he's talking about this, this new creation, this new way of fulfilling God's desires for humanity, I think John is saying that at the very heart of it is Christ's death and resurrection. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles, Jesus said. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him, and on the third day he will rise again. I think it's intentional. I think we find marriage now put back on a pedestal, but not as the ultimate Christian relationship status. Instead, as a sign that points us to the self-sacrificing, unifying, faithful love of God. That's what was going on at the wedding at Cana. It wasn't about the bride and the groom. We don't even know their names. What was happening there is Jesus was beginning his walk to the cross. He was living out what none of us had been able to live out down on through the years. So when we think of marriage, God wants us to remember back to the story of creation and recognize in Jesus the start of a new creation. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. A marriage is about a husband and a wife pledging vows, making commitments, doing life together, looking back on that life and describing it as love. That's all of that. But, but what we're talking about this morning is, is that marriage points to something else. It points to an invitation for us to enter into that same kind of relationship with God, to know that that is why Christ came, that Christ came to, to live sacrificially, unselfishly to the end for the sake of relationship with us. Close with a quote. And then we'll pray and dismiss. Donald Miller writes, It would be most tragic for a person to know everything about God, but not God. To know all about the rules of spiritual marriage, but never walk the aisle. And so in this morning's story, I I hope that there's a sense of an invitation for every one of you this morning. To know that, that all of this talk, all of this symbolism, it points to an invitation. That God invites you into a relationship of love. I invite you to stand. We'll close with a word of prayer.